following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, June 3rd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Grab your Bibles and make your way to the book of Psalms. In fact, head to Psalms chapter 1. We're going to spend the month of June, I don't think any longer, but the month of June... Uh, journeying around the book of Psalms, our, our summer in the Psalms, or at least our summer month in the Psalms. But um, as we begin, let me make a couple public service announcements, or one announcement and one prayer. Uh, the first announcement is God in His kindness towards us, and in His refining grace towards us as a church, He gives us the summer months here at Holton Elementary. And if you've never been with us through a summer at Holton, Um, Let me explain what I mean. There is no standardized control for the temperature in this school on this campus. They control the temperature at the city office. So sometimes the heat's on in the summer. Sometimes it's not. Right now there's a hole in the air conditioner. So this part of the school and what takes this unit is broken. So throughout the summer, just prepare yourself. You might come in and at nine o'clock was so nasty. It was unbelievable. But just prepare yourself. It's, it's God's refining work of grace to us. He's asking for a measure of increased grace-driven patience with one another and patience with the school and gratitude. Better 10 years, and they've made it open to us. But it means not just the temperature, but just parents. Just go ahead and be alerted. There's going to be a time at some point, we're going to have about another month before this happens, but they're going to start preparing the rest of the school for the next school year which means we're going to come in here on a Sunday morning and the place where we gather one classroom for kids is going to be torn apart with cleaning agents everywhere. And we're going to have to go somewhere else and you're going to have to navigate your way around the building in a different way. And it's just going to require a a grace-driven flexibility and a grace-driven patience on our part. So in some sense, we look forward to the summer because God is refining us. um, And he is refining what it is we are grateful for. And we are tremendously grateful to be here. Um, to be able to gather together, but it's starting, as you can feel. Um, second public service announcement, first prayer, though. We're going we're gonna to pray together as we get ready to go into God's Word, but just by way of reminder, um, this morning, right now, they are in the middle of it, or, or close to wrapping up, uh, but Rayshon Graves is leading his first service as senior pastor of West End Baptist Church this morning. So, Yeah. So this morning marks the very real, tangible, physical beginning of kind of a, a long revitalization process that God has graciously brought us into. Uh, we have been able to send Ray Sean to spearhead that, and we will find out along the way in the coming weeks and months how we can best, as a church, support what's going there, be a part of what's happening there, help him as he's leading that. But this morning was his first service, so they're almost done. So let's pray for our time together. Let's remember him and what God is, is calling him to over there and what he's calling us to in that um, as part of the church in this city. So let's pray for our time, then we'll jump into it together. Father, we thank you again for the rich privilege that we have to be gathered here this morning. We know that it is a work of your grace towards us and your spirits provoking of us that gets us up and gets us to a place like this on a Sunday morning to hear from you through your word. And so we ask this morning that you would do the miracle that only you can do and you would open up our hearts that we might hear wondrous things from your word, delightful things from your word, 
that knowing who it is that's speaking to us, we might surrender ourselves in joy to this word. We ask this morning around this city and churches just like this, but particularly over at West End, as Rayshawn stands up to deliver your good news to that church this morning, that you open up their hearts, that they receive the good news of your grace and gospel through your appointed messenger there, that they surrender to that with joy together and they, they join as one body in the, in the work that you're doing there. Give him wisdom, give him courage, give him clarity. Help us as his friends and as his brothers and sisters to be a helpful support to what you're doing there. And we look forward to the fruit to come in the weeks and months and years ahead, not just at West End, but here at Redemption Hill and throughout this city. And so this morning we ask that you would do that miracle. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Psalm chapter one, as you make your way there, I will remind you of this as well, but this is more about the sermon. Um, this is the time of the year when, when school is ending. For some of you in college, you are already done with classes. Some of you parents, your children are already done. Mine finished up last week. And for some of you, you've got one, maybe two more weeks left. But this is that time of the year when that part of our life wraps up. But I don't know if you're aware that right now, on one college campus in America, there is already a queue forming in the registrar's office to get into a class next fall. Every semester, 1,200 students jockey to get into one class, which is now the hottest class in America. It's Psych 157, The Psychology of a Good Life, or How to Be Happy. Hottest class in America right now. Yale professor Lori Santos said specifically that she built this course to address what she calls the epidemic of unhappiness in America the epidemic of unhappiness. In her course, she, she cited a couple of different studies for the reasoning behind her efforts to do this. She said in a recent survey by the American College Health Association, 52% of students reported feeling hopeless, while 39% suffered from such severe depression that they found it difficult to function at at least one point during the previous year. And Professor Santos is not simply uh, focusing on college campuses. She said she called it an epidemic because it spreads across our entire country. And she quoted another study, the, the United Nations World Happiness Report, which ranked the United States 18th in the world, trailing what she called the bastions of well-being, being Finland, which is number one, but Canada coming in at number seven and Australia rounding out the top 10. The United States ranked 18th, almost 19th. So Professor Santos, looking at this epidemic of unhappiness in America, and in particular in her world on the college campus, developed a one-semester class on the art for how to be happy. And it's built around three questions. What does happiness look like? Why aren't you happy? And what can you do to change that? So who wants to take the course? Anybody want to be happier? Anybody want to be more joyful? Would you be surprised to find out that Psalm chapter 1 addresses these very questions? Now, I don't have an entire semester. She had 21 one-hour lectures. You can read some of those transcripts online. That's what I did. I've got 30 minutes, give or take, 
to address these things through Psalm 1. So let's together ask the Lord to help us to begin to understand from his perspective how we answer these questions for his glory and our increased joy. What does happiness look like? Why aren't you happy? And what can you do to change that? Psalm chapter 1, the very first psalm in the Psalter, the gatekeeper, so to speak, to the rest of the Psalter, was chosen intentionally to lead off this collection of hymns, this collection of songs that have marked the life of God's people for centuries. If you're not familiar with it, the book of Psalms is the very first hymn book of God's people. It was compiled over the course of about a thousand years. It's got a number of different authors, all who come from different backgrounds and different experiences in this life. It's actually one collection that's broken up into five different collections that were compiled at different points in time that together make up what we know as the book of Psalms. And Psalms chapter one was chosen specifically to lead off this collection of songs of worship. It's the bouncer, one commentator said. It's the one that says, enter here through me, and you'll find the answers to the greatest questions you could ever ask. Who am I? Who is God? How can I be happy? How can I be fruitful? Commentators through the centuries have believed the rest of the book of Psalms, the other 149 Psalms, are simply an exposition of Psalm chapter 1. Because the way Psalms chapter 1 is written and where it's placed in pride of placement in the book of Psalms, it makes a comprehensive statement about life and about what you'll find throughout the rest of the Psalter. There's an artistry to the book of Psalms. There's an artistry to Psalm 1. These were poems. These were written with certain poetic devices and artistic devices used to communicate different things. In Psalm chapter 1, The very first word of the psalm starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The last word of chapter one of Psalm one starts with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That was an artistic device the psalmist or the writer would use for the reader to understand that everything that I'm saying here is a comprehensive statement from start to finish about life. And he starts with the word blessed happy, joyful, and he ends with the word perish. So what I am saying, he is saying through the way that he's written Psalm 1, has to do with everything about life. Happy, blessed, joyful. The psalmist isn't speaking about some kind of circumstantial or topical stimulus that you get from someone liking something you post online or or agreeing with a comment that you make somewhere else. Those are chemical reactions in the brain that give a, a sense of joy and euphoria that fade just as fast as someone ignoring and disliking what you say. The blessedness, the happiness, it could be translated, the joyfulness that the psalmist is talking about is something that is stable and steadfast and deep. The psalmist starts off this psalm that they chose to put it at the very beginning because it begins, the happy one, the happy person is the one who. And everything else is going to relate in some way to this. How can I be this happy person? 
verse 1, the psalmist specifically and artistically chooses to get to the answer of that question by helping us understand the things that do not lead to happiness. Now, here's what I like about this, and I wish we had the time, because if we had the time and I was conversant enough with Professor Santos's course on the art of happiness, and I'm only conversant enough with what I actually read and thought through, so I don't want to mistake everything she said, but if we had the time, I'd love to overlap the places where Psalm 1 and her course overlap and say very similar things so that you might understand where they diverge at the most important points. And I'll try my best to do that. And as we go through it as well, I'll I'll try to show you the various different poetic devices that the writer of Psalm 1 uses as we work our way through Psalms in the summer. And you'll see different aspects of this artistry. But Professor Santos actually begins her course at Yale on the art of happiness in the exact same place. She starts by talking about all the things that don't lead to your happiness. In fact, if you go look at the titles of her lectures in the very beginning of the course, they're titles like What Doesn't Lead to Happiness, Part 1, and What Doesn't Lead to Happiness, Part 2, and The Politically Incorrect, Why Your Mind Sucks. Why what you believe and your mind is telling you isn't going to make you happy is basically what she's getting after. She starts, in some sense, the same place the psalmist starts, by looking at those things that don't lead to happiness. The psalmist says, blessed, happy, joyful, is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And here you have a a creative artistic device the psalmist uses intentionally. He paints a downward digression, a downward slide, a downward gate of this person's life and of this person's walk. It was a creative way of helping you to see the impact of different things. Happiness, what doesn't lead to happiness is here in verse 1. Walking, living according to, living in line with the counsel, the worldview, the perspective, the understanding of the wicked. Wicked there means it carries the weight of instability. So we're talking about ways of thinking, so that means we're talking about moral instability. Walking in the counsel, the ways, the perspectives, the worldview of the morally unstable. It's not going to lead to your lasting, deep-rooted joy and happiness. In fact, it's going to have a declining gait to it he's going to show us. But be very careful. The psalmist isn't saying don't talk to the morally unstable. He's not saying don't have lunch with them, don't work with them, don't befriend them, don't go do things with them. He's talking very specifically about buying into the way of thinking. Walking in the counsel of is taking heed to the perspective of the instability and applying it to your own life. That has consequences. Listen to what he says. Those who walk in the counsel, the perspective of the morally unstable, sooner or later you're going to find yourself standing indistinguishable from them, standing in their shoes, standing in the way of sinners, of those who have missed the mark. They use the word there in the Hebrew that means missing the intended mark, sinners. So living in the counsel of those who are morally unstable leads you to a place where ultimately you find yourself absolutely indistinguishable from those who have missed the mark. That's what it means. 
It doesn't mean to get in the way of like an impediment, like I'm going to get in his way and not let him by. It means doing the very same things. So that you find yourself indistinguishable from them. And if you live in the council, you buy into it, you apply it to your life, you find yourself indistinguishable from them. The declining gate the psalmist is helping us to see is that at some point, you will probably find yourself looking down your nose, scorning the righteousness of God. This is the declining gate that does not lead to lasting happiness or joy. If you can try to sum it up with a bow, you could say that moral instability gives way to living openly in sin and scorning the righteousness of God. Now, the psalmist is going to help us to see in verses 2 and 3 a positive picture of the one who is happy, who is blessed by God. But verse 1, by helping us to see the things that don't lead to happiness, it allows us to think for a second, what's the flip side then? Without going directly into what he says, you begin to think, okay, what is the implied reality there? If this doesn't lead to happiness, what you can say is the one who is happy, the one who is blessed, the one who is living in deep and abiding joy, is someone who's going to have to make some very courageous choices in life. If walking in the counsel of the wicked, the morally unstable, if applying their way of thinking to your own life leads you ultimately to a place where you miss the mark and may find yourself scorning the righteousness of God, it means if you're going to be the truly happy one, the truly blessed one, the truly joyful one, you're going to have to make some courageous choices in life. And I'm not coming up with that on my own. If you were to go really read this and you can see it in the English, that declining gate, the council of sinners, the seat of scar, all of it is plural. They're all plural there. The only thing that's singular is the blessed person. You're going to face choices, pressures, influences. The one who will be truly blessed, happy, joyful, is going to have to make some courageous choices. Is going to have to choose between the popular counsel of this world the popular cynical and skeptical view of life, and he's going to have to choose something else, something he deems to be more satisfying and delightful, something he deems to be better. And so by inference, in verse 1, you can say that there is real joy to be had, real happiness to be found in saying no to the right things. There is joy to be found in, in saying no to the right things. But I don't want you to get the idea that the psalmist and Christian joy and Christianity is, all, is defined by all the things you're against. That's so easy to conclude, isn't it? We can so easily fall into the trap of defining ourselves by the things that we're against, the things that we're not for, rather than defining ourselves by the things that we are for. And that's what the psalmist is about to do. He's going to give us another picture of this happy, this joyful, this blessed one, this answer to the question, how can I be this person? What is this happiness? He's going to help us see it here. Look at verse 2. Verse 2, he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, I want you to know that it's here at one point in her class on the art of happiness, Professor Santos kind of agrees with Psalm 1 verse 2. 
When she gets to defining happiness and how one can actually become a happy person, she goes on to argue that you can discipline yourself into happiness. She defines happiness by well-being, which is a slippery term in and of itself, but that's a whole other sermon for another time. But she says the whole art to happiness is by is disciplining yourself into it. There are things that you can do to increase your well-being or happiness. And if you're really familiar with Psalm 1, you knew exactly what the psalm said when we started, and the answer you have in your mind is that joy and happiness comes if I read my Bible more. I know Psalm 1. I've heard people preach from it. I memorized it in Sunday school. I memorized it in school. It's all about reading the Bible. Okay, happiness, blessedness, and joy comes if I read the Bible more. If I discipline myself into the things that will make me happy. There are things that I can do to discipline myself to find increased well-being or happiness. Okay, well, to that sense, they agree. But that's overlooking the first part of Psalm 1, verse 2. Look down at verse 2. Verse 2 says, the blessed person, the joyful person, the happy person, their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. This is where Professor Santos and true biblical joy differentiate. And Christianity go right, and she goes left. You see, Christianity and real Christian joy and happiness, they're not simply a matter of you disciplining yourself into them. It's not just a matter of your resolution and your grit and your capacity to keep those disciplines up so that you can discipline yourself into joy. Christianity and Christian joy are ultimately an issue of what you love, what you delight in, the things that taste good to your heart. You see it in verse two? It's not the happy person, the joyful person just meditates on God's law day and night. No, there's something in front of that. It's because they delight in the law of the Lord that they meditate day and night on it. The issue has always been what your heart takes delight in. In fact, John chapter 3, verse 19, I looked it up in the car. I got the wrong verse at 9. It's not 18, it's 19. John chapter 3, verse 19 says that Jesus came into the world. Light came into the world, and the world was divided based on what it loved. Light came into the world. And there were some who loved their sin and loved darkness. But others came to love the light, came to love him. It's always been an issue of delight. Christian joy, Christian happiness, Christianity in itself is an issue of what brings delight and joy to your heart. So watch the progression the psalmist uses now. If you start at verse 1 showing us this declining progression for those that walk in the counsel of moral instability, watch the progression now for the truly happy and truly blessed person. Same device, different direction. The truly joyful person delights, takes joy in God's word, sees it as beautiful to be desired, to be depended upon, surrendered to, trusted, sees its stability, sees its steadfastness. It wants it. It delights in it. And because the truly joyful, happy person delights in God's word, he or she there meditates on it. 
It's because God's word is the delight of your heart that you're inclined to meditate on them, to think on them, to turn them over in your mind, to ask of them, what is God saying of himself? What is God asking of me? Because I know whose word it is for his glory, for my joy, my well-being. I want to understand what he says because I delight in him and I delight in his word. Therefore, I think on it and meditate on it. It's not simply you can discipline yourself into being happy, just read the Bible more and you'll be happier. No, it's because you know whose word it is. And you take delight in him and in his word that your joy, your delight in him overflows in your meditation on it. Now, I've never looked this word up. Sad to say I've never looked it up. I've always leaned into books that I've read or things commentators have said or professors have said. And you've probably, if you've heard sermons on Psalm 1, you've probably heard someone talk about meditating on God's word, kind of like steeping tea in a cup. And you put the tea bag into the hot water, you just let it sit. Slowly the hot water extracts the tea and the elements from the tea bag and that hot water becomes that hot tea. And, or you've heard someone talk about meditating on God's word, the way the cow eats grass and chews cud. He's got four chambers in his stomach. You know, he eats grass, he chews it up, but then he regurgitates it and he eats it up again. He does it again, does it again. That's what we do when we meditate. Well, I looked the word up. All of those things are right and true, but I looked the word up. The word actually means to mumble to yourself, to murmur to yourself. And so I looked up the word, what it meant and where it was used in the Bible. It's always a good way to kind of study what's happening. Is it used somewhere else in the Bible? The Bible is always the best interpreter of itself. So where was this word used somewhere else? Well, Isaiah chapter 51 verse 3 uses the exact same word here that we translate meditate, and it talks about a lion who has caught its prey, taken it back to its den, and as it gets ready to eat its prey, it meditates, it purrs, it growls with delight at the thought of ingesting the thing that is going to bring it sustenance and stability and strength. It's so happy at what it has that it purrs to itself and growls to itself. There's a pleasure and an anticipation in taking in what will make them stronger and give them strength. I have a child that does this. I was so excited to understand this word this week. I have a child who sits in front of something that this child particularly loves at a table, and this child just talks. <laughs> just makes noises, completely unconscious of it. My wife and I will look at each other sometimes, and like, this child doesn't know that they're doing it. That's what this is talking about. There is a delight in God's word because of whose word it is and what this word is that causes your heart to overflow with this anticipation of taking in for your own life and your own strength and your own well-being that which is going to give it to you and so you just turn it over and over again and take such delight in it. It's one of the things I love about the progression of the way the CBR journal is written that many of you are reading. You're listening to God through his word actively. You're asking him to help speak to you in his word, show you who he is, glorious things from his word about himself, and helping you to see more accurately who you are. You're turning those things over that you might rightly confess your increasing need for him and see his supply in his son and then begin to ask for him to continue to change you by his grace into Christ more and more and more. 
It's driving you to delight in God's word that you might turn it over and meditate upon it. There's this progression there because you have delight in it that you meditate in it and therefore you surrender to it with joy. The one who won't find happiness and joy in this life is the one who gives themselves over that way to the counsel of the morally unstable and begins to apply that counsel to their life, finding themselves ultimately scorning the righteousness of God, and as we'll see at the end of the psalm, not able to stand before God in his holiness. But happiness and joy is found in a deep delight in God's word, a delight that causes us to pour over it with joy, that we might surrender to it in delight. See, for you and I on this side of the cross, this law, this, this word, we got this 11 o'clock. I'm just going to tell you everything. This, this word law, you naturally are thinking Ten Commandments, right? Well, some of you are thinking, well, he's just talking about everything that existed when this psalm was written. All of God's word that had been recorded and written down at that point, that was the law. This is what the psalmist is referring to. Well, he actually uses the word you might be familiar with, the word Torah. That word, technically, the Hebrew word, it means to throw something with the intent to hit a mark. That's what the word means. So in Proverbs chapter 3, when you read, my son, do not forget my teaching, my law, my Torah, but keep my commands in your heart, the reader and the listener to Psalm 1 would have heard that word being used of God's word. The almighty, sovereign creator and king of kings and lord of lords speaking his words of instruction to those that he loved with the intent of hitting the target of their heart. And the only right response to such words of instruction aiming for the joy and the transformation of the heart would be to delight in them. To receive them with joy. To surrender to them with trust. To obey them with steadiness. You see, for you and I, in in this side of the cross, that law, that teaching has become gospel. So we have the privilege and the delight for our hearts to be instructed and shaped by the good news of God's grace through Jesus Christ on every single page of the Bible. And so we will continue to insist upon being right about the sufficiency of Scripture and the authority of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture and spend time this summer at the dessert series talking about those things, but more than just being right about things. The psalmist is asking, do you delight in them? Does your heart delight in the law, the teaching, the word of God? Does it overflow in meditation upon it that it might dwell in you richly? Friends, delighting in God's word, it will not make you weird. I know that that is a very real fear. What, if you're gonna be really honest with yourself, when you hear me talking about delighting in God's word, you wish it would be, I would just sit and it would be safer for your heart for me to say, if you would just go somewhere where no one else was around some point during the day or in the morning, take a Bible, read it for 10 minutes, check it off your list, then you'll be this person, then you'll know everything is okay, then it's all going to be right. You can just discipline yourself into this happiness because delighting in it scares you because you've got someone in your mind that you have thought or described in your mind as being someone a little too zealous about that word. 
So when you hear me talking about delighting in it, you need to understand that delighting in God's word is not going to make you weird. But what the psalmist says is that delighting in God's word is going to make you fruitful. See, this is where the progression that he is building takes us. Look at verse three. The happy person, the blessed person, the one whose delight is in the law of God and that delight overflows in a meditation upon God's teaching for his heart day and night. They're like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf doesn't wither. They're not accidentally blown to a place of stability and health. They're planted there. Someone from outside of themselves, God by his grace and the work of his spirit has intentionally planted them at the one place where the roots that go down from them by his spirit are able to nourish them in times of drought, times of discomfort. This isn't a seed that's been blown out by the wind and just lands somewhere. No, with intentionality and care, it's been planted in the one place that when the rain season ends and the dry season comes and the riverbeds turn to mud and there's no running water anywhere and all the color around Jerusalem looks brown, there's nothing else there, their roots, because of where they were planted, are able to go so deep down they can be nourished and sustained by the deep waters. When it's dry, when it's hard, when it's hot, their leaf doesn't wither. At the right times and according to the right means and in the right seasons, they're fruitful. One pastor said, in a world where people are cold and hard, these have the fruit of love. In a world where men and women are totally discouraged with life, these have the fruit of joy. In a world which is full of angry people falling out with one another and refusing to have anything more to do with one another, these have peacemaking fruit where people are short-tempered and snarl at one another. These are long-suffering and gentle. Oh, such luscious fruit. In a society where people are encouraged to give in to their feelings, if you just want it, then go do it. These have the fruit of self-control. The most lovely fruit is found in their company. You see, if happiness or joy, if blessedness was somehow contingent upon our circumstances, we would never actually experience it. Happiness is not contingent on eliminating everything in our life that causes us pain, everything in our life that brings discomfort. Happiness, the psalmist is helping us to see, is being well-rooted and well-planted. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, that it was in a severe test of affliction that the abundance of joy in the church and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Poor, afflicted, yet so full of joy, so full of happiness, so blessed in the Psalm 1 sense that it overflowed in sacrificial love towards others. The well-rooted the well-planted, the truly happy, the psalmist says, in all they do, they prosper. Now, it's another sermon for another time, so I won't get into it too much this morning. But depending upon how you define that word prosper, 
If you read it in the context of Psalm 1 and define it in the context of Psalm 1 where it's used, I think it's biblically plausible to say there is a good news of prosperity. We don't like to talk about that around here. If you define prosperity and the message of prosperity as an increasing reality in this life of golden roads and clear skies and no sickness and increased bank accounts, then I think you've misdefined it. You're not using the word as it's used in Psalm chapter 1. In fact, the life of Jesus himself doesn't bear that to be a reality. He experienced times of immense joy and immense satisfaction, smooth sailing, but extreme suffering and hardship. But if you allow that word to be defined by its context, and prosperity becomes being so well-rooted and so secure in who God is and the nearness of God providing you and nourishing you and keeping you that in all seasons of life, in good times and bad, your leaf doesn't wither. There's resilience and stability and steadfastness. And when time comes and it's due season, you bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life in that moment, then yes. Call me a prosperity preacher, I guess. If that's how we define the word and that's how it's being used, it's this word that we live by. It's this word, God says, revives our souls. It's this word that is his very power to even cleanse us and wash us and transform us. If by this word we find ourselves rooted and grounded and nourished in the reality of who God is for us and who we are in him so that in all seasons of life we don't wither, and we bear his fruit where he places us, then yeah, yeah. That's a prosperity message. See, the psalmist is describing for us in artistic and poetic ways what this happiness really is. This is what happiness looks like. It's being well-rooted in the God of all creation being well-rooted in the God of all grace. It's your roots going deeper and deeper and deeper into the reality of who he is for you, that you find yourself nourished and sustained and delighted in him. Happiness looks like the one who is rooted and identified in that. That person is not going to be blown about like Paul talks about. You're not going to be tossed to and fro on the seas. That person is not going to be unstable, not steadfast, not resilient, not happy, not joyful in affliction, overflowing in love. That's not going to be that person, but if you are, that's what happiness looks like. The wicked are not so, he says, though. Verse 4, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. The whole point there is to see the utter opposite. If the happy, blessed, joyful person is the well-rooted person who goes through the seasons of life just like everyone else, but whose leaf doesn't wither, who bears fruit in those seasons because they're nourished by the reality of who God is for them and continues to be for them, the morally unstable are just the opposite. Chaff is rootless, fruitless, unstable, unsteady. It's the outer hull of the wheat germ that gets broken out when they thresh it and blown away in the wind. It's the complete opposite. The morally unstable, the chaff, they don't delight in the things that can sustain. 
Their delight is not in the law and the word, the teaching of God. Their delight is not in who God reveals himself to be for us in his son. That is not where their delight is. They try to plant their delight in the things of this world that they think will make them happy. They try to plant their delight in circumstantial changes in this world that bring those topical, momentary, biological acts and feelings of happiness. Professor Santos actually agrees with the psalmist here. She actually says in her course, not everything you think that will make you happier won't because nearly everything you're likely to list is some circumstantial change. You'll tell yourself that if you had more money, a different home, a different job, a long vacation, a better body, or even that enticing snack that lies just beyond the vending machine glass, your mind is constantly telling you that if you just got those things, you'd finally truly be unequivocally happy. But your mind is wrong. The morally unstable attempt to root their life and seek happiness in that which can't last or satisfy. The blessed are not so. The happy one, the joyful one, is the deeply rooted one. The psalmist, he, he brings this psalm to an end with a a final summation, and he's kind of bringing it to a summation with a different kind of poetic device, but he's getting to a question that he wants you to have to ask yourself and and grapple with. In verse five, listen to what he says. He says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's a poetic chiasm, it's a pattern, A, B, B, A. Wicked, righteous, righteous, wicked. The whole point is to see what stands out in the middle. And what the psalmist is saying as he brings this poem to a conclusion is that a day is going to come when God will deal with each and every single one of us exactly as he is speaking to us now in his word. And the implication is simply this. What will that day look like for you? The morally unstable, rootless, and fruitless will not be able to stand before the Lord on that day. Their way, the psalmist says, their way, their pattern of living, their way of thinking, the fruit that they're following in their life, their way is going to be gone. It's not going to be like that forever. And on that day, they can't stand before him. What is that day going to look like for you? That's where the psalmist has been driving this. If this is what blessedness and happiness and joy looks like, if this is what fruitfulness looks like, if this is what you want with your life and what you pursue with your every decision, how I can be happy and more joyful, knowing this, what is that day going to look like for you? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What delight is your heart taking in something that is worth exchanging your soul for? One commentator summed the whole thing up this way, and I don't think there's a better way to do it. What you delight in is ultimately going to determine your destiny. Your delight determines your destiny. 
The blessed one delights in God's word and therefore thrives in this present evil age. Doesn't wither and bears fruit at the appropriate times. The wicked, the morally unstable, they delight in their own minds, in their own ways, in their own perspectives. They despise God's word, not delight in it. And because of it, they won't be able to stand before him. Everybody wants to be happy. There isn't anyone who wants to be chaff. No one wants to be fruitless and rootless and unsteady and unstable. So how does one become this blessed person? Well, Psalm 119 verse 18 says, it's actually a prayer. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law, out of your teaching. See, there's nothing more wondrous that any person in here could ever see, even in Psalm 1, than to see by God's grace the truly blessed man to whom this psalm points because it's confidence in that blessed man that finds you and I in a place to experience this kind of happiness and joy. You see, true happiness and true joy comes as our meditation points us to Jesus, the one truly happy, truly joyful man, the true living word, the true tree planted deeply in his father's word, so well-rooted, the Bible says, that living water flows out from him. He's the one who didn't wither. He's the one who didn't fade. He's the one who actually prospered in the midst of such suffering and death itself. To find ourselves being men and women shaped by these psalms, we must find ourselves hidden in the man of these psalms. It's to him they point to and him they reveal. So blessed, joyful, happy are those who find their delight in God's word rather than in the instability of the wicked. Blessed are those who are rooted in Christ by grace through faith. They will be tree-like. Oaks of righteousness, Isaiah says, not chaff-like. They will display the same fruit in their life that their Savior displayed. They will experience God's care forever rather than his eternal judgment. You can be truly happy. You can be truly joyful. It's a matter of what your heart delights in. As we prepare to respond this morning, we're, we're going to start by giving you a little bit of space. We're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on what you have read and what you have heard. I would say to you this morning that this may be a time for many of you to allow Psalm 119.18 to be your response to God this morning. There are many in here, I would assume, who could say with a clean conscience that there has been a time in your life when you know what it is to delight in God's word, when you know whose word it is and that brings delight and joy to your heart that you find yourself insatiably trying to consume it. But if you were really honest with yourself, that would not characterize you now. I know those seasons. Jonathan Edwards would describe them like a bucket of water outside in the winter and a layer of ice would slowly freeze over the top. And if you left it out there too long, that ice would get thicker and thicker and thicker and it'd be harder and harder to break it. Maybe this morning is the time in the next couple of minutes when 
Psalm 119.18 becomes your prayer. Open up the eyes of my heart that I might see wondrous things in your word. Confess the coldness of your heart to God. He is a God of unending grace and mercy. Just be honest with him. Tell him. Tell him you want more of him to delight deeper in him. This is what A.W. Tozer did, a man of monstrous proportion in the church. In one of his own journals, he wrote this prayer. Oh God, I have tasted your goodness and it satisfied me but made me thirsty for more. But I'm painfully conscious of my need for further grace because I'm ashamed of my lack of desire for you. Oh God, I want you. I long to be filled with longing for you. I thirst to be made thirstier by you still. Give me the grace to rise up, to follow you. Maybe this morning, Psalm 119.18 needs to be your prayer. That God would open up the eyes of your heart that you might see the most wondrous thing of all, his glory in the face of his son for the first time or the first time in a long time or you need him to crack the ice that's forming over your heart that you might delight increasingly in him and in his word. Friends, God is calling us to a lifetime of deeper and deeper joy through his word. May we not allow one another to accept any substitutes or take any shortcuts. And together, may we be able to encourage one another to go to him daily for grace and share in the amazement together of his faithfulness to us. I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna give you that moment to reflect and respond and then for those who have tasted of God's ever-present goodness and faithfulness through repentance and faith in Christ as King and his Savior, we're gonna invite you forward to remember the sacrifice of Christ in your place for your sin, to remember the steadfast reality and security of our joy and happiness in the bread and in the cup and being well-rooted in him together by receiving communion. We'll sing, we'll be sent out from here to a place of air conditioning and joy. <laughs> so let me pray and then we'll respond. Father, we thank you. We thank you for speaking to us through your word. God, it takes your miracle by your spirit to open up our hearts to see the wondrous reality of your grace, to see the wondrous reality of your mercy, to see the wondrous reality of your justice in your word. Apart from you doing that, it's never going to happen. So this morning, Lord, please, for your glory, for our joy, for our lasting joy, open up hearts in here this morning to see again or for the first time your glory and your grace and your word. Make us a people who delight in nothing less than who you are for us and who you reveal yourself to be in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.